compassion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Stephen Alby. Thank you so much, um, again, just for um, the opportunity to preach God's Word to you. It is a privilege and an honor. It's something that I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoy doing. Um, And I'll be honest, maybe it's a selfish thing, but Wednesday nights are just not enough for me to be able to preach God's Word. I love doing it with uh, students, but it's fun to really dig in deep and dive in together with with the rest of you. I notice you're all very far away from me, so I hope that's not a personal uh, indictment against me. I did shower this morning, but... um, Maybe you're just leaving plenty of room for the Holy Spirit, I think is what we'd always said. These first two rows are definitely reserved for him. But I appreciate um, all of you coming out in the fog and uh, joining us for um, the word of the Lord. Now, I want to begin with a question. I want to ask a question for you guys to ponder. Um, This is weird for me because uh, I'm not going to ask for a response, which I'm so used to doing on Wednesdays. But this is just something for you to think about and something to keep in mind as we go through our passage today. But I want to ask you, if you, went on, if you went just out into the city and you asked random people, I'm not talking about your next door neighbors, I'm not talking about the person sitting next to you in the pew, but if you asked just an everyday random person what they thought about Christians, what do you think their answer would be? If you asked what they thought about Christians, if you asked them to describe a Christian, what would their answer be? Would they say that we are kind and loving people? Or would they say that we are rash and judgmental people? It's a question that I have been pondering an awful lot this past week. And one of the reasons comes from an awesome opportunity I got to have last weekend. You see, there was an exhibit up in the cities that my wife found, and it ended up being the last week of this exhibit. So I feel bad telling everyone about it. It's unfortunately gone and all back to its original country, but it was a collection of Martin Luther's personal effects and his writings and drawings and illustrations and all kinds of things that were from the era of the Reformation. For those of you who are unfamiliar, the Reformation happened exactly 500 years ago this October, and Martin Luther was one of the big instigators of this um, important time in history. Now we got to see a bunch of these things. It was up at the Minneapolis Institute of Art And I'll be honest, it was amazing to see some of these effects. I got to see the pulpit from which Luther gave his final sermon. I've sent pictures of it to Pastor Kurt, and hopefully one day we will have it here. I'm kidding. It's gigantic. It's like 50 feet tall. I mean, it's it's not that big. It's huge. But um, I got to see the famous table from Table Talks. Those of you who know Luther's writing, he wrote an incredible book where he would sit down with non, uh, non-Christians and people from other faiths, and they would discuss things over a table. I got to see that table. Like, it was the actual thing. Um, I got to see actual portraits done by Lucas Cranach, one of um, the famous portrait artists of the day, of Luther and his wife, of Frederick of Saxony. All these wonderful things. I'm totally nerding out right now, and I'm owning it. But what was amazing is we got to see all these things is that, yeah, I got to see Luther's, uh, the distribution of his 95 Theses, an actual, like, printout from um, the printing press of the 95 Theses. I got to see the writings that he wrote. I got to see what the popes of the day, or the pope of the day, sent back to him. I got to see all these wonderful things, and yet, what was so interesting to me is some of the other things that I saw I wasn't expecting. 
You see, I got to see some of the insults that Luther wrote to others. I got to see some of the drawings that were written from both, or drawn from both sides of one another, and many of them I can't describe to you in polite company. One that was, just to give you an idea, was a monk's head being played as a bagpipe by the devil. And this was an idea of saying this is where Luther apparently was getting his ideas. At least this is what his opponents were saying. And, and vice versa, back and forth, they called each other the Antichrist. Both sides of this argument and debate called one another demons and heretics. And now while we owe so much to the Reformation, what was so interesting to me as we saw these things is that what survived wasn't just the good that came out of these conversations, but it was a lot of the slander. It was a lot of the argument. It was a lot of the attacks. And a lot of it made me think, wow, 500 years ago, people were mean. Now, since we owe so, I mean, we still owe so much to the Reformation, I don't want to take anything away from that. I mean, if you have a Bible in your hand right now, written in a language that you speak, it's owed to the Reformation. I mean, Wycliffe is actually continuing on what Luther had started when he first translated the Bible from Greek and Hebrew into German, so that the people of the day could have a, a Bible in their own language. If you have the ability to take communion, and if you have the ability to have a say in the policies and procedures of your church, it's owed to the Reformation. But what struck me as I contemplated this with my wife afterward was the question of how would things have been different if love dominated these conversations rather than hatred? I know some standing kind of far back. It's because you guys are all standing so far away. I'm going to move closer. Um, if love dominated these discussions rather than hatred. I wondered what would happen because we as Christians may know that Martin Luther was a believer and his heart was in the right place, but most of what he will be remembered for was what we saw at this exhibit. A lot of what he will be remi remembered for is slander and insults. Now, all these, happened, all these events happened 500 years ago. Honestly, we're not that far removed today, are we? I mean, there are differences in what media we use, but I am shocked all the time with how quickly I see argument turn into attack where people attack one another rather than the argument that was presented to them. How quickly anger is used and all these things. I mean, honestly, maybe you don't slander somebody publicly or maybe you don't write scathing illustrations about them. Maybe you do, I don't know. But what I do see a lot, and it breaks my heart, is I see on social media how quickly somebody will throw something out there in anger towards somebody who disagrees with them. And for those of you who think maybe this is really far along, what would happen if somebody slandered your favorite sports team? I know I go a little crazy when somebody says that the Raiders are better than the Broncos, which sadly the season they were. But another thing too, maybe that hits a little bit closer to home, is what would happen if somebody slandered your favorite political candidate? How quickly would you go to post in anger in social media things that you can never get back? And now even when interacting with people of other faiths, how often do we, and I'm convic convicted of this myself, how often do we feel that anger and that rage well up inside of us when we see that same person post another article against what we believe? How often do we interact with them in anger and shout them down and try to shame them or attack the person rather than the argument? I'm reminded of the scripture when I wonder how often we rep repay evil with evil instead of overcoming evil 
with God. Another thing I learned from this Luther exhibit is that we don't know what will survive after we're gone. Luther and his opponents probably didn't think that all of their slanderous drawings and insults and written words would survive as long as they did. I mean, it was 500 years ago. But that's what we have today. I always have to remind students of this, but I think all of us need to be reminded that when you post a scathing comment on social media, it stays in their servers forever. I know a lot of us are very happy when we see Facebook tell us, hey, a year ago you posted this really awesome thing, but sometimes, I'll be honest, I see Facebook say, hey, remember when you posted this scathing comment about somebody that they didn't know was really about them? Yeah, you posted that three years ago. And here it is again. Now, while you may say that people should know your heart or should know who you are as a person, it is very important to remember that once something is out there in the world, it is impossible to get it back. How much of what we speak or write will be remembered long after we're gone from this earth? So my question to you is this, how will you be remembered? How would that person on the street define you as a Christian? How would that person remember me long after I'm gone? Will you be known for being kind and loving or will you be known for being rash and judgmental? What if we were known for being kind and loving? What if we were known for our love? What if what people said about us, no matter who you talk to, was that Christians love God with all they have and love all people? What if we showed the world that we were indeed different, not through our beliefs and arguments, but through how we loved each and every person? C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors, wrote once that a person's spiritual health is directly proportional to their love for God. I would agree with that and I would argue even further that our relational health, how we interact with one another, is directly proportional to our love for God as well. So now let's turn to the passage we're going to be studying in depth this morning, Matthew 22, 34 through 40. And while you get there, I want to give you just a little bit of a background because we're jumping in the middle of a story. You see, right before this interaction that we're going to look at, some Sadducees came to Jesus and they tried to trick him. When they asked him about the resurrection to see if Jesus would contradict Moses, Jesus silenced them with his answer. It was so beyond what they were expecting and was so different than what they were thinking that they ended up being silent before them. And now the Pharisees heard this interaction, and that's where we pick up in our passage. So join me as we look, Matthew chapter 22, starting in verse 34. It says, But when the Pharisees heard that he, Jesus, had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, have you ever thought about the statement that Jesus makes here at the end of this passage? All the law and prophets depend on love. All of the law, not just the Ten Commandments, but all 613 of the laws that you find in all of those books you skip on a Bible reading plan depend on love. The laws involving sacrifice, what food to eat, the laws about how to punish evil, all of those laws depend upon loving God and loving your neighbor. Now, not only this, but all of the prophets depend on, to- on love solely. 
Isaiah and Jeremiah, the big prophets, wrote out of love for God's people. They wrote what God commanded them because they loved God and they loved the people to whom they wrote. It might be hard to see that when they proclaim judgment, but it's based on love. Even those little books written by people we can't pronounce with a bunch of H's and K's in their name are written in love. Now, do you see why love is so important and it should break our hearts when we see so little of it in this world? Now, we'll see in this passage that Jesus gives us four ways for this love to be shown. These are the four loves that we're going to dive into a little deeper now. He tells us to love God with our heart, with our soul, with our minds, and to love our neighbor as ourself. Now, I believe that Jesus puts a love for God and a love for people together very intentionally because it is impossible to love others well unless we love God fully. Especially, now it might be easy to love people that we get along with, but it is especially important if we're going to love people we disagree with for us to love God fully. You cannot have a love for neighbor in the way that God commands us without a love for God. We need to understand how to love God first in order for that love to overflow into our relationships with others. And now if you're not a Christian, if you're not sure about who God is or, or what this whole Christianity thing is about, I'm so glad you're here. Because love is the dominant theme in scripture. It is called God's love letter to us. And what I want you to see is that these aren't just empty commandments, but in fact, they actually flow out of God's character. They flow out of the same love that God has for you right now. Whether you're a Christian or not, God loves you. And God cares for you and he desires you the same way that he expects us to love him. So let's, go, let's look at the first way that they give us, that Jesus gives us to love God. It says to love God with your heart. So what is the first thing that you think of when you think of love? Most of the time for us, it's that feeling that you get right here in your heart. It's that warm, fuzzy, joyful, emotional feeling, right? That's what love is. And yes, we are, to co- we are called to love God this way. And most of us, when we first come to a knowledge of Christ, when we first come to know him as our Savior, this is the kind of love that we experience. We feel a strong desire and affection for God and the things of God, right? Now, this is the same kind of love that many of us, some of our students are here who went with us to impact earlier this month. This was the kind of love that we felt there. It's a strong desire, it's this emotional rush, it's this great feeling that comes from being with thousands of people as we worship God together. And it comes from seeing lives changed, it's, it's a passion. And what's amazing to me is that not only are we expected to give God this kind of love, but God actually has that exact same kind of love for us. Do you ever think about that? God desires you. God loves you. He's affectionate toward you. I know it can be hard to feel that way sometimes when we're stuck in sin or when we feel far from God, but remember that God cares about you and loves you. I mean, hear these passages from Psalms as they talk about God's love. I mean, it's everywhere in scripture. I just pulled out a couple to remind us here. I mean, Psalm 17, 7 says, wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior, of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Psalm 25, 6 says to remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Psalm 32, 10 says many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. God has the same kind of love for you and me, no matter where we are 
in our spiritual walk. Whether you are far from God right now or whether you are very close to him, he desires you and has affection for you. But with us, because the way God loves us is perfect. With us, it's a little different. Our feelings sway, don't they? I even felt this after we got back from impact. Some of us, especially those of us who were leaders and didn't sleep as well as we could have, got this sense when we came back of like a crash, where you're on this great spiritual high, this wonderful feeling of love for God and for all people. But then what happens when you get off of that spiritual mountaintop and life sets back in? What happens when the vibrant atmosphere of worship and praise is then replaced with routine of work? This happens often, and sometimes I've seen this with students. Be, they'll begin to question their experience. They'll, be able, they'll start wondering, now, was this real? Did what I feel actually be an interaction with God, or was this just something that I was just having a really good day, or I was having a really great weekend, or I was around my friends, or was this real? This is the problem that comes when we base all of our love on God, or all of our love for God on feelings. I believe this is why Jesus splits out the amounts, or the types of love that we are to have for God, because one can't exist without the other. And to love God simply with our heart while being incredibly important is not enough to sustain us. And I'll be honest too, it's very difficult to translate that kind of warm, affectionate love for an enemy, isn't it? It's very difficult for us to say that we love and feel that, that feeling of love for somebody with whom we disagree. So I believe that is why Jesus goes on and gives us our second way to love God and to love others. It says, to love God with your soul. Now the word soul is one of those words that is a little tricky because our English word is a little different than the word that is used in the Greek. For most of us, when we think of soul, we think of that internal part of us that has nothing to do with our physical bodies, right? We think of that part of us that's going to live with God forever, but not the part of us that is like our physical body or physical action. Whereas in scripture, the word that is used for soul or translated as soul here actually means both. It means the physical parts of you and the spiritual parts of you. It means your entire being. And what I believe Jesus is saying here and the reason that he says this specifically and uses this word is because he wants us to love God and to love people with not just our, our affections and our feelings, but to love God with our actions, to love God with our entire being, our entire body. Now, this type of action is something that I feel like some of us, it's pretty easy to translate like genuine feelings of love into action, right? It's a little easier to do this. While loving God with our actions might be a little bit more difficult, this is something that a lot of people, as they become Christians, will start to do. I think that's what scripture tells us. When we are obedient to God, we are loving him with our soul. When we do the things that God commands, when we resist temptation, when we fight sin, we are loving God with our soul. We are loving God with our body. Now, I think this is interesting because sometimes we forget that loving God with our actions is as important to our spiritual well-being and our relational well-being as loving God with our heart. And we will say, okay, I will do these actions when I feel like doing them. Is anybody else like that, or is that just me? When you feel like you need to work, like read your Bible more, or you feel like you need to pray, but your heart just isn't in it, I'll be honest, there are times where after a long day of work, and I think if, if you're all honest, hopefully I'm not alone in this, it feels like there's just nothing left. It feels like your, your mind is just taxed, 
or maybe your emotions have been taxed by a difficult day, and you're like, you know, I know I need to be in God's word, I need to bring things to him, but I just, I don't feel right. And some of us, if we're honest, we almost feel like we're doing a disservice to God if we come to him without our affections being right. But my friends, I want you to hear this. God doesn't expect us to be on fire for him all the time. Only God, in his infinite glory, feels the same deep affection for all people all the time. None of us do. And what's even more amazing about God is that doing those actions, praying when you may not feel like you should pray, reading scripture when you maybe don't feel like you're even that close to God, will many times generate the kind of feelings that we're craving. Let me say that again. When we give God our actions, regardless of how we feel, sometimes, actually most times, it's those actions that are actually going to generate those feelings of love for God. I can't tell you how many times I felt worn out and bogged down. Maybe I couldn't sleep at night. And instead of getting frustrated, I go to the Lord in his word. And in that word, I find joy, and I find peace, and I find rest. And I'll be honest, there are times where my heart does not feel in it. I do not want to go to God's word when I'm angry. I'll just be honest. There are times where I don't want to go before the throne of God when I'm feeling shame or guilt. I mean, we even see that as we were going through Genesis, way, way, way back in the third chapter when Adam and Eve felt so shameful and guilty about what they had done that they didn't want to go before the Lord's presence when the Lord was the very person who would bring them what they needed. How often is that with us? where We feel like we need to be in the right place emotionally in order to get what God so freely offers when all we need to do is go to him. My friends, Jesus tells us to love God with our heart and with our actions. They're both intertwined together. And now what's amazing, again, is just that God shows the same kind of love for us. God doesn't just love us in feeling. He loves us in action. He loves us in so incredible ways that instead of staying in heaven to enjoy the glory and the power of heaven, God the Son came down into this earth to show us how much he loves us. He told us in word, but then he came down in action in deed and not only lived a perfect life, taught us how to live as a Christian, but gave himself up as a sacrifice for sin, all because of love. He did this so that not only would we be free from sin, but that we would join him in the resurrection on the last days because he wants to be with us forever. God's actions didn't just have feeling involved. I'm sure that there were even times when Jesus didn't feel that same love and affection for those who were attacking him. But he loved them so much with his actions. And he loved them through his death on the cross, even able to forgive them while he suffered. May we be more like Jesus in this. Hear the words recorded by the beloved disciple, John, in scripture. If you want any book of scripture that talks more about love, read John. I mean, we have John 3.16. We all know this passage, but hear it again. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal Life. In John 15, 3, it says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. And then even in a much later letter, 1 John 3, 16, it says, By this we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us. 
And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Word here, family, not just physical brothers. We have seen that we are to love God with our heart through our affection and our desire and to love God through our soul and our actions. We see that God loves us this exact same way. These types of love, the action type of love, it's actually pretty easy to translate to our neighbor, right? Even when you're not feeling particularly caring or particularly loving, you can show love to your neighbor. You can show it to them by being with them when they're sick. You can show it to them by taking care of them. You can show it to them sometimes by what we say, but sometimes by what we don't say. You can show love to your neighbor through action in so many ways, especially when you don't feel like it. And it's amazing to see what happens when those actions start to generate feeling. If you continue to do angry and hateful actions toward somebody, oftentimes you'll start to feel angry and hateful toward them. But the opposite is true. When you do loving actions towards someone, when you do kind actions towards somebody, even if you don't necessarily feel kind and loving to them, it's amazing to see what happens to your affections. You'll begin to change. You'll begin to care about them. You'll begin to care about their well-being and about who they are. And God, I believe, does this. I believe he generates this inside of us because he wants us to care about each other. He wants us to love one another, but more importantly, he wants us to love those who aren't a part of his family yet. Now, while, all these, while these two are both essential to our walk with God and our witness in the world, I believe that the most neglected way for us to love the Lord is to love God with our mind. And I believe that loving God with our mind also is a natural outflowing of the previous loves. And God actually loves us with his mind too, which I think is really interesting to think about. Now, for those of you who doubt that loving God with our mind may be the most important of the loves we discuss here, I have a question for you. Can you truly love someone you don't know? Can you truly love someone you don't know? Now, you may feel affection for them. You may do loving actions for them, but can you love someone? True, deep, core of your being love without knowing a thing about them. It seems for a long time in Christianity we're, temp- we're tempted to do just that with God. We may feel a desire for him. We may do loving actions, but we don't desire to know God with our minds. I would see this sometimes that Christians would claim ignorance with press- when pressed with the deep questions of the faith and they would throw up that mystery card really early. They would say, oh, I don't need to know why or how God exists. I don't need to know that God exists or be able to defend it. I just need to know that he exists and just throw up the mystery card whenever somebody questions it. I won't even allow myself to question these things because then I don't really feel like that's faith. I wrestled with this. I'll be honest. I wrestled with this a lot because I felt like if I started asking these questions of God, I'll be honest, I was afraid that I wouldn't like the answers. It actually came from a lack of trust in God. I believe that when we say that our faith is the answer and keeps us from pressing into those philosophical questions that sometimes keep us awake at night, I feel like we're not giving God the credit he deserves. God is rational. He is defendable. I believe Christianity is actually the most rational and most defendable of all faiths, to be perfectly honest. 
But I feel like sometimes we get so afraid when we hear intelligent arguments from other sides or people who try to make us feel stupid for believing that God exists or that Christianity is true that I feel like sometimes we have a hard time engaging God with our minds. And my friends, remember that faith does not mean ignorance. There are things about God that we cannot understand, and for those things, I am more than happy to throw up the mystery card. I will not ever fully understand God, and to be honest, I don't want a God that I can fully understand. I want a God who is so beyond me that there are going to be things about him that I will not know. But, I feel like sometimes we cop out too early and we feel like that there is nothing about God we can know. Or we feel like that God is some impersonal force out there that is unable to be known and studied and appreciated. But I believe for us to fully know God, we need, or fully love God, we need to know about him. When we think about it, what sets humans apart from every other creature? It's our ability to reason and rationalize and ask these questions about the world around us. So there are three ways that I want to give you to love God with your mind more this year. These are things that I've been trying to do myself and something I want to share with you. The first one is pretty easy. We've been talking about this the whole month. It's take up and read. Many of you have gotten those bookmarks that have come in your bulletins that have a chapter a day for you to read out of the New Testament. Give God some time. Spend it with him. Read the scriptures. Take advantage of the fact that you have a Bible. You have the same Bible that I have. Like seriously, it's, it's not any different. Mine might look a little different because it has notes and stuff because I need more help sometimes. But it's the same Bible. You have the same Bible that I have, that Pastor Kurt has. It's the same Bible. Read it. Study it. There's nothing special about, you know, a, a certain position or, you know, no one is more spiritual because of their position. We all have access to the same Bible. Take it and read it. Now, I'm sure there are some of you who are way overachievers and have probably finished the whole New Testament already, and that's totally fine. There are some of you who are readers, and that's great. But still, carve out time. Don't, don't see the take up and read challenge um, as less than it is. Don't say, okay, I did it. I, it was a box to check off, and now I'm done. Find time to read Scripture. Read the same passage over and over. Read one proverb and meditate on it. There's so many ways for you to get into God's Word and engage God with your mind, and it is rich. And it'll bless you immensely when you get in to God's word and love him with your mind that way. The second one, and I get weird looks when I encourage this to people, but I actually want to encourage you to engage in philosophy. Yep, there's a couple of those looks. I want you to engage in philosophy. And now what I'm not saying is I'm not encouraging you to go home right now, sit in a nice comfy chair and just say why all the time, like you're a little kid. I'm not saying that. I'm not asking you, to engage in philosophy the same way that some of us do when we stub our toe on the coffee table and go, why is that there? But I want you to engage in philosophy in the way that says, I'm going to ask questions about this world. I'm going to ask questions about what I'm told. I'm going to ask questions about God. And I'm going to search the things that I don't know and try to find answers. Maybe I'm becoming too much of a cynic and I understand that, but I see incredible value in questioning everything. I love to question things, to press into things. I love to question my own beliefs because of how strong they make, I make them and how strong God makes them. Now, I'm not saying that you should never be satisfied when you find an answer. There are clear objective truths in Scripture. God exists, period. 
He's defendable. His existence is provable. There's evidence of his existence all around us. But unless you ask those questions and press in on those things, when somebody asks you why you believe that God exists and they're looking for an answer, sometimes just saying that you simply believe that God exists isn't going to be enough. Jesus was a historical person. That can never be refuted. He was a real person who really lived and really died, and actually there's more evidence to uh, support his resurrection, just the resurrection of Jesus. There's more evidence to support that historically than there is to support the existence of Julius Caesar. And yet none of us question Julius Caesar's existence, and yet there's more evidence for the resurrection of Christ. All of this is a way to engage God with your mind. A lot of us maybe think, we hear the word philosophy and we think it's weird so we don't engage in it, but I encourage you, ask these questions. Ask, how did all the animals get along in the ark? How did Moses, like, part the sea? How did God, like, work through him to do that? Why on earth does a duck-billed platypus exist? This is one of the philosophical questions I can't figure out yet. Why did God create such a weird-looking thing? But even more importantly, ask the questions, why, are, why am I here? Ask the question of what God's purpose is for you in this life. What does God have in store for you? Another way to engage in philosophy that I love when our students do this with me, it used to be frustrating, but I love it a lot now. If you hear a sermon and you hear a talk, question it. Does it align with Scripture? Does this align with what you have been taught previously? Does it align with this book that you have available to you? Search the scriptures. I love when students come up to me and say, well, okay, you mentioned this in one passage, but I know in this other passage it says something a little different. What what does that mean? How do they coalesce? And it's amazing to me because there are times where my understanding of God has been deepened from a 13-year-old's question. And being able to defend different things and discuss different things is one of the greatest gifts God has given us and I think that's why he has given us his word. He wants us to search it and know it and ask questions of it. And especially, even if you're not a Christian, you can love God with your mind through asking these questions. In fact, C.S. Lewis actually became a Christian through asking these questions. He actually became a Christian because his philosophy of atheism could not account for his feeling of justice and morality in the world. And that spun his whole understanding into questions. So we started to ask God what that meant. Lee Strobel, many of you guys know him as the one who wrote The Case for Christ. He was trying to disprove Christianity and became a Christian when he realized that all of the evidence had no other explanation. But ultimately, the way that you give God your mind is just to give him your thoughts. Puritans would say that you were to take every thought captive and give God time Give him your mind. In Deuteronomy 6, it's the passage that Jesus actually quotes in, the, in our passage in Matthew. Later on, it gives us some advice of what to do with our knowledge. It says, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them digil- diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit at your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. Furthermore, remember, uh, Paul actually reminds us in Philippians 4, 8, and 9, he says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you.
Now this brings us to our fourth love as we close, love for neighbor. I hope that you've seen as we discuss ways to love God that these naturally overflow into ways to love your neighbor. There's a natural outpouring, a natural overflow of affection that when we have it for God, we have it for others. My friends, if God, the only innocent victim of sin, can desire and love the entire world enough to make Jesus, who knew no sin, to actually be sin so that in him we might have the righteousness of God, then my friends, you can love the world too. You can love your neighbor. If we love God with our actions, then it should naturally overflow into loving others with our actions. The actions we do in obedience to God should build us up and serve our neighbors. And finally, when we love God with our mind, we'll see that he is defendable and powerful. And to be honest, he can defend himself. But we have the confidence to be able to engage with other people in this world who believe differently than us with love and confidence as opposed to judgment and wrath. The way that we prove that Jesus exists and that we are his disciples is not through argument and anger, it's through love. So instead of being set apart for how we argue with one another, let us strive to be known for how we love God and for how we love one another, but more importantly, how we love everyone else. Our passage tells us to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. On these hang not only the law and the prophets, but also our faith, our relationships with others, and our witness to the world. Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the amazing amounts of love that you show for each and every one of us. God, it is a natural outpouring of your love for us that we love you and should love all people. God, thank you for setting an example for us of love. When, Lord, you could have easily wiped away all of us for the sins that we have committed against you, and every single one of us deserves death for our sins. God, you did not condemn us, but sent your son Jesus into the world to save us. God, such love is too good for our minds to comprehend. It is too sweet for our lips. But God, it is true. I pray for my friends here as they seek to love you more with all that they have and all that they are, as they seek to love their neighbors themselves, God, that you would empower them through your love. And that, Father, we would be a light to this world that we would show them that we are your disciples by how we love even those we disagree with, God. So be with us this week as we put this love into practice. I pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Stephen's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.